Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on September 19, 2018, providing an overview of the proposed guilty regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a PwC tax partner and leader of our Washington National Tax Services International Tax Services Practice, and Nini Dewar, Nicole Hinton, and Marty Hunter, all PwC tax partners in our international services tax practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists regarding the treatment or effects of the guilty inclusion and guilty consolidated group rules. Have a listen. Let's move uh, to our next section, which is the treatment and the effects of guilty inclusion. So I have a guilty inclusion, Nikki. What do I do with it? This is a good question. Not all the questions are answered, but um, so the U.S. shareholders guilty is generally not a subpart F inclusion, but it's treated like a subpart F inclusion for, for several purposes in the code. And, and the regulations, the proposed regulations do help us a bit um, by fleshing some of that out. Um, so th- there is a, a, some detail on that. Um, you know, in addition, it expands the list of code sections for which the guilty inclusion is treated like a subpart F income inclusion. And specifically, it extends it to 1411 which I think does answer the question of how is net investment income treated from a guilty perspective. Um, Additionally, it clarifies that items that are includable in the gross income of U.S. person, um, to the extent a pro rata share of tested income of CFC decreases the U.S. shareholders pro rata share of tested loss of the CFC or both. there is, and, and I think here there, there's a good example of, of where this is really relevant, and um, that's with regard to 267. So for 267, let's assume that CFC1 receives interest income from CFC2. And under our, our prior rules, when we were just um, looking at earnings and profits, we would say, okay, well, when is the, um, when is the interest expense deductible for EMP purposes? And um, 267A3 cap B would tell us that it becomes deductible Um, either when paid or when CFC1 takes into income the interest income. The U.S. shareholder of CFC1 takes into income the interest income. One good clarification here, one helpful clarification here, is that for guilty purposes, to the extent the interest income is tested income, is viewed as tested income, then we should be able to take into account the interest expense, the deduction for guilty purposes. So I think that that is you know, helpful in terms of answering one question that we had, although maybe not some of the more major questions that people are worried about in the polling question. And I guess notwithstanding the fact that there's a 250 deduction, that you get 50% deduction, the entire amount um, is freed up, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, you know, additionally, the, um, the regulations do provide some mechanical rules for allocating the guilty inclusions back to the individual CFCs. So, um, you know, as we know, guilty um, calculation is done at the U.S. shareholder level, but it needs to really be pushed back to the CFC so that we can, um, we can maintain the attributes appropriately at the CFC level. So we, we are told now that we can push back essentially on a pro rata basis based on tested income. We are able to push back the actual guilty inclusion to those individual CFCs. I guess one thing that isn't included is the the treatment of the 247 cap A, where which is the hybrid right. rule, right? That there's a specific carve out that the in, if the income is included in the subpart of right. income, then you're kind of out of the 267 cap right. A rules, but not nothing in the context of guilty. So you can right. have guilty inclusion, but still have issues with 267 cap A. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, 
The other piece, we, we pointed this out earlier in the webcast, is around basis adjustments and basis adjustments that are required um, to CFC stock in cases where there's been tested loss. So the basis adjustment rules are generally required when we have um, specified stock and we have a tested loss of a CFC that's offset tested income of another CFC. And so what is essentially in the rationale for this is that um, the basis adjustments are required because we have had a tested loss that is presumably offset tested income at the US level. And then if there's no basis adjustment, if we go ahead and sell the shares of the CFC, we would either recognize less gain or an increased loss. And that has been being viewed by the government as essentially double counting of the loss. Of course, when you're looking at the double taxation through a, an entity, that was okay, but the double counting for the loss not okay, right? Yeah, and that does seem to be maybe a theme of these these proposed right. regulations is really a desire to make, ensure that there are no double counting of losses or double benefits right, that, right. that companies are receiving. So specified stock of a CFC um, is owned directly or indirectly under 958A by a domestic corporation, and the reduction is only required at the time of disposition. So this is really interesting because what this does is it seems to indicate that we have a... Um, we have a requirement to maintain almost a register of these tested losses that have been used to offset tested income and to monitor them over time because they really become relevant only at a time when there is a disposition, um, uh, which, is, which is basically a transfer of the specified stock. So, you know, as I said, this brings up an interesting point around tracking and tracking that's going to be required on an ongoing basis to the extent that we have CFCs with tested losses. So the tracking applies to the net amount of tested losses used, which is then defined as the used tested loss uh, by CFC over time. And, and we'll show an example in a minute that, that walks through um, basically how that works to the extent that there is a tested loss in year one but maybe then uh, in, in the following year there's some, some tested income um, that is used to offset another CFC's tested loss and, and how that, that works through the calculation. Um, interestingly, there are, um, you know, there, there are a number of um, examples in the proposed regulations that talk about situations where you have tiered CFC structures. And what they do is, is they, they require adjustments not just at the level of the, the U.S. shareholders' interest in the top CFC, but also um, down below in, in certain circumstances, particularly if there's tested losses in lower tier CFCs that are offset, used to offset tested income at the U.S. shareholder level. So there are a number of um, fairly detailed examples that we're not going to go through uh, that work through how you make these basis adjustments through chains of corporations. So maybe we'll head to the example. Hey, we don't have a lot of pictures in our, our yeah, back here's here. Yeah, we've got one. There's a lot of words, but there's 157 pages, so we had to give um, a, a clear nod to a lot of words. But um, there will be more pictures, I, I think, to come, and further communications we'll have as people work through examples. But Marty, can you take us through this one? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, so. This is an example of the the concept that Nikki was describing, where you've got um, you know multiple CFCs uh, held by a U.S. shareholder, uh, where you have tested loss CFCs and tested income CFCs, and over the period of years, the U.S. shareholder is required to track the used tested losses and, and tested income against tested income of other CFCs. So to, to set out this example, which is example three in the regs, um, 
CFC1 has tested income in year one of 100. Um, CFC2 has tested loss in year one of 90, so a guilty inclusion of 10, assuming everything else away at the parent level. Um, and that 90 of tested loss is a used tested loss at CFC2 that is tracked. In year two, the, the results are a little bit different. CFC1 has a tested loss of 10. CFC2 has tested income of 10. Uh, CFC2's tested income, notwithstanding that it's offset by the tested loss of CFC1, still reduces the used tested loss, which is sort of an aggregate or, or sort of cumulative concept uh, with respect to the CFC2 stock under the mechanics that Nikki described. So the result that, we, that, that, that flows here is that when USP then disposes of the stock of CFC2, its basis in CFC2 is adjusted downward by the amount of the cumulative used tested loss of 80 uh, over the two-year period prior to the disposition or whatever period, uh, any of the activity that occurred prior to the disposition. Um, so that, you know, like, like Nikki said, it's probably a, a rule that we may not have anticipated or that a lot of people didn't anticipate. Um, and, and some questions could be raised as to, you know, even if you benefited the tested loss, perhaps, you know, that the basis write down is something that you may have gotten 21% benefit for in the hands of a U.S. person, and you only benefited the tested loss, assuming all else that you're paying guilty tax at sort of 10 and a half, taking into account the 250 deduction, so. And I guess it's, it's also interesting that guilty is supposed to act like a residual sort of provision, and now we're tracking, you know, all these numbers and information everywhere. Again, that calculator's just not going to do it, is it? Yeah. Yeah, because it sort of moves guilty, which is, is you know, sort of an annual year-by-year -year concept, yeah. too, and, and causes you right. to, to track certain, yeah. certain tested losses uh, you know, and how they interact with tested income in the future, yeah. uh, you know, really into the future until such time as you dispose of shares of a CFC. Right. And, and I guess we're not covering it here, but, like, in terms of the RACs actually provide some rules around how to allocate things between different classes of stock, and that also requires yeah. a significant tracking of, you know, Q-buy and tested loss and tested income, and yeah. it just seems a lot of tracking. Yeah. A lot of tracking. I'm, I'm just thinking about some of the tax departments that are going to be rolling their eyes when they hear there's an acquisition on the horizon, and they're like, oh, yeah. no, I hope they did a good job. Well, like yeah. like Nikki right. said, <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the deferral world, you, you know, you yeah. had to comply with 5471 requirements and report certain yeah. financial statement information, but... This just expands yeah. the detailed reporting you might do for a U.S. company effectively right. to every company in the world, yeah. uh, in, the, in the group. Yeah. yeah, and it just increases the burden on you when you go to sell CFC2. You know, it, it, for many companies, there was often an exercise to determine the basis of CFC2 at the time that you actually did the disposition. So that, that's nothing new. But I think that the new part is that there is this, this lengthy additional calculation potentially that one needs to consider to really nail down that basis number. Yeah. And 338 if it's a foreign acquisition, but if you're acquiring right. a U.S. group of CFCs, yeah. a little harder, unless you actually split that acquisition up and do two parts or do things. But, yeah, it's it's going to be kind of a nightmare for... And, and it's also the due, 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 oh, due the diligence. Oh, the due diligence. Right. Like, how, do you, be, yeah. how do you, Absolutely. you know, come out of that? Much more expansive where U.S. tax wasn't necessarily such a factor for CFC operations. Right. And now it's just as relevant potentially as foreign tax. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, guilty consolidated group rules. Well, so what? There's, there's <laughs> <laughs> more rules? Yes, more rules. More rules. So there's actually, a, 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 I guess, a positive um, result from from this Rex on the consolidated point in in this, in, in that uh, 
essentially the rules provide that the calculation of the guilty inclusion for members of the consolidated group can be done uh, or will be done on an aggregate basis. And, and I think that's helpful for when you think about um, different U.S. shareholders within the U.S. Uh, consolidated group that some may have significant QBI and, and some may have tested law. So there's an issue that, you know, the, the, the net combined liability of the group may be more than if, you know, if everything is, is, is treated as part of the same um, single U.S. shareholder. So the rule uh, provides for an aggregate approach, and, and the way that the income uh, is calculated is um, each member will have to calculate their tested income, tested loss, and all the elements of uh, interest expense, interest income, their pro rata share of that amount. And then those amounts are aggregated at the consolidated um, level, and then the amount of the guilty inclusion is then sort of allocated among the various members based on the proportionate share of the tested income that the, the that U.S. member contribute to the total tested income of the group. So um, there are a number of uh, examples in the regs that provide for uh, the, the um, uh, calculation. And um, the these rules are in the 1502-51 rules. And the the other rules that are included there is um, the, the specific rules to make basis adjustment to, to Nikki's point because the, the, the dash six, the 951 cap A-6 provides rule for basis adjustment. So in the consolidated return context, they also have specific rules to deal with that basis adjustment in the context of the, the consolidated um, group. Um, the, I think if we can flip to yep. the next slide. Uh, there's also uh, some adjustments under the 1502-32 to deal with the investment adjustment rules. Essentially, the the basis in the member stock will be increased by the member's um, offset tested income, which Nikki kind of illustrate or talked about uh, the new definition. We have the offset tested income and the used um, tested loss amount. And so... The, the rules are modified such that the, the there will be an increase in the the basis in the member uh, to the extent of the offset tested income, and the flip of that is there is, there is a decrease in the basis to the extent of the the used um, tested loss uh, with respect to that particular CFC. So again, a lot of um, calculation and tracking and tracing after who has income, who has used the loss, and all that. Uh, and so that just sort of moves up the CFC level adjustments up into the consolidated group. So yeah. we're tracking CFC basis and then tier yeah. that up into the consolidated right. members. Right. But the reason for them to, to address this rule, I think, was a little uncertainty about the, the statutory language that was used and whether or not it was the consolidated group or the individual member of the consolidated group. Yeah. And had they not done this, I mean, we all hoped and expected they would, but had they not, um, I think taxpayers would have, face the, the possibility of having to move all their structures under a single hold co yeah. if that gave them a better answer, or or leave them apart if it gave them a better I mean, you'd be going through all these decisions about um, what was the best answer and combining some things or not combining. And um, This just takes that whole issue off the table, so that's good, although it's still, again, very complicated, as you explained. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. Like It mitigates the issue around having to consolidate it, moving, actually, yes. stru moving the structure around yes. to get out of the yeah. 
to get back to where we're actually going to be on an aggregated right. basis. Right. Right. That'd be triggering state and local taxes as you're trying to do things. Um, and this package is just the inclusion side, but it yes. certainly suggests an approach that might be taken for the 250 deduction exactly. side. Yeah. Yes. yes. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.